0: So David and Abashai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with a spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abashai said to David, God has given your enemy into into your hand this day. Now please, Let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abashai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be God.
1: We're currently walking through the life of David uh, as a series, and right now we're picking up with where we left off last week, with David on the run. So last week what we saw is uh, David running from Saul, and we saw a friendship between Saul's son Jonathan and David. And now for the next 11 chapters or so of 1 Samuel, David is on the run from Saul. He's running around like crazy. In fact, over these 11 chapters from 1 Samuel 20 until 1 Samuel 31 when Saul dies, um, David moves to at least, this is of the recorded places, he moves to at least 16 different locations during this time. Some of you are like, well, that sounds about average for a Bostonian. But let me tell you, that was a little bit above average for, for people in the ancient Near East. David is moving around everywhere because the king is after him. The king is trying to kill him. Can you imagine what it must be like to be a young man, to be faithful to your king, to be a strong warrior, and to have the king chasing after you, trying to kill you? David has about 600 men during this entire time when Saul is chasing him around. And Saul is chasing him around with 300 of his selected warriors. So it's not the whole, the whole army of Israel. He was like, we just need enough to make it to where there's absolutely no way David's going to beat us if we ever find him. So he's chasing him around looking for everywhere. At one point, this is like some straight up mafia stuff. At one point, David has to take his parents out of their homeland and move them to the land of Moab. Uh, if you remember in your Bible, uh, Ruth is a Moabite that we read about, and she is David's great-grandmother. And so as he moves his parents to the land of Moab, they know them because they're like the grandchildren of Moab in that way. So they, they protect them in Moab. At one point, David has to go and live with his enemies in the Philistines and serve the Philistines so that he can be safe from the Israelite king. That is crazy that he goes and serves the Philistines. He's like a servant in their home, protecting them so that he can be protected from his own king who wants to kill him. In this story today, what we see, and and we actually have two occurrences of this in 1 Samuel 24 and then again in 1 Samuel 26, and what happens is Saul is completely delivered over into David's hand. He's completely given over. Uh, He stumbles upon David The first time in chapter 24 in a cave, the second time in chapter 26, he's he's out in the wilderness and and David's spies find him before he gets to uh, David's camp. And David has an opportunity to end it. He has the opportunity to just say, okay, this is over. I'm not going to be chased by the king anymore. God's already anointed me as king. I'm not going to run from him. And he has an opportunity to just kill Saul and end it there. But yet he chooses mercy instead of murder. And when we look at that, there's a lot to question here. Why in the world would David choose mercy over murder in this situation? Mercy is something that's really difficult for our our outrage culture to understand and get behind. Normally, I can't remember a time when I've ever quoted Twitter or a tweet, because normally opening Twitter is about about like opening the compost bin on a hot summer day. You don't know what's going to crawl out of there. It's just not a place that I like to open very often. Um, But this tweet uh, from uh, a woman named Elizabeth Brunig from the New York Times captured so well our modern idea of mercy, our modern idea of outrage, it was in the middle of this past summer when all of the racial unrest and, and the cancel culture storm was going on, and she tweeted this, and it's very profound. She said, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. There is just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. And that's the world that we live in. That is gold. With our culture's demand for justice, but constant canceling of people who deserve it, usually, it's just unsustainable to demand that type of justice without having mercy in that way. And so what I want to do is is study these two passages. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 Samuel 26, the passage that Jonathan read just a moment ago. But I want to look at how David is able to show mercy for Saul. What enables him to do that? I think it's something that's very profound to us and helpful for us as people who are wronged and who see wrong in the world and who deeply care about the wrong that we see in the world. But how do we approach that wrong and trust the Lord and have mercy and move forward with convictional kindness as believers in the Lord. So, let's look at the first one first. In 1 Samuel 24, this is not the passage that we read just a moment ago, but it is very similar to it. There's two stories very similar. I think that the the author is trying to get something across to us as he's sharing these stories about David's character. But in both of these situations, David is hiding out. Saul stumbles on him. David has the opportunity to kill him, and he has mercy. So in the first episode, what's actually happening is David is hiding in a cave, and his, all of his men are in the cave. It must be a very large cave. There's 600 men hiding in this cave, and David is, uh, and Saul is out looking for David and his men. And Saul is looking, and it's actually a hilarious situation. And Sometimes you just have to remember that the Bible can be funny, Okay. When we read the Bible, a lot of times we do it with these these gloomy glasses on, but sometimes just read the Bible for what it's saying. What it actually says is that Saul walked into the cave to relieve himself. That means that Saul walked in the cave to relieve himself. This is the cave where all of David's men are hiding. And so what happened is David's men said, There he is. Go get him. You can end it now, David. But instead, David says, I will not lay a hand on him. But he sneaks up behind him, and I don't know how you do this, but he snuck up behind him to where he didn't hear him, and he just snipped off a tassel from his, from his robe, the corner of his robe. He cut it off. Now, this is significant. It's more significant than what we realize, because in Deuteronomy 22, it says that, we, that they're supposed to have the corners of their robe, these tassels that they would keep. And so when David cut off that corner of his robe, what he's doing is he's causing Saul to be outside of the law of God. He's actually causing him to break the law. And he's also showing that he could have killed him. And so after Saul walks out, and he finishes his business, and then he walks out of the cave, somehow David is not seen as he cuts off this little corner of his robe. And then he calls out to Saul and says, look what I got. I have have the corner of your robe. See, Saul, I had mercy on you. Let that melt your heart won't you have mercy on me? I was kind to you. I could have killed you. Won't you now stop chasing me around? And you know what? It works for a minute. Saul's heart is, is pricked, and he says, David, how, why have I been doing this to you? It's like sanity enters his brain for just a second. But then, just a couple chapters later, he's chasing Saul through the wilderness again. And we see the same thing play out in, different, in a different way. And so 1 Samuel 26 He's chasing David again, his, his army is camped out, and the way that this would often work is it says that the army is camped out around uh, uh, Saul and his general, Abner. So what is happening is 3,000 men camped out, they all have their, their armor and their weapons of war, and the general and the king sleep in the very middle. And that's because that's the hardest place to get to. They would have to walk through the entire army to get to the middle. And so what David decides to do is wait until they all go to sleep and then sneak his way into the middle of of the encampment. And so he gets one of his military leaders, Abishai, and they walk to the middle of the encampment. And they are there, and everybody's still asleep. And Abishai, he actually says to to, uh, David, this is kind of funny, he says, "Uh, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Well, first of all, Abishai's kind of bragging. He's like, I'm an expert assassin. I can take this guy out. But at the same time, he better be right, because if it took him two hits, that would be it for Abishai and David. You know, you're in the middle of their army. You can't let them wake up and start screaming, all right? It has to be a one shot, and that's it for Saul. But David says, no. He says, no. He says, verse 9, do not destroy him for who can put out a hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And instead, what David does is he says, grab that spear, grab that water jar, and let's sneak out. So they grab his spear and grab his water jar, same kind of thing as cutting off the corner of his robe, but they grab his symbol of power and his symbol of life, the spear and the, jar, the water jar, and they sneak out of the encampment. And in fact, they, they don't do it on their own strength, sneaking out, like David, the Lord, like David always is at this point in his life, the Lord is with him, because it says the Lord caused everyone to fall into a deep sleep. Another place where you see this, I preached this passage a couple years ago, is when, David, when God put Abraham into a deep sleep to cut the covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15. So you can check that one out later and be reminded of it. I, I love that passage. So they sneak out, and then they call back, and they say, who's supposed to be protecting the, the king right now? Abner, you deserve death, because I just snuck in there, and I took his, his spear, you're falling down on the job, Abner. And Saul calls back, David, is that your voice? And David calls back, look, I have your spear. I have your, I have your water jug. I could have killed you again. Won't you have mercy on me? And again, Saul is struck to his heart. His heart melts. And again, he has mercy on, on David for a time. And then he just picks up the chase again. He just starts doing it, but it's like sanity comes into his brain for a moment. As we look at this, I want us to think about David's mercy. I want us to think about two different things regarding his mercy, and first is the reason for mercy, and the second is the requirements for mercy. The reason for mercy and the requirements for mercy. So first, the reason for mercy. Why does David show mercy to Saul? Does Saul deserve his mercy? Does he? Does Saul deserve David's mercy? No, he's chasing him around like like he's on a hunt. He's trying to kill David. It's kind of like kill or be killed for David. He does not deserve to be treated well. But listen to David's reasoning. When he comes up to Saul, he has the opportunity to kill him. David says, And as the Lord lives the Lord will strike him or his day will come or he will go down into battle and perish. And so for David, to kill Saul is not an option. The the options for the end of Saul's life are three. One, the Lord will strike him. Instantly, boom, God can kill you. And that could happen to Saul. Two, his day will come. Maybe Saul will grow old and he will just die. And that would be the Lord's way of killing him. And three, he'll go into battle and his enemies will kill him. But as for me, David, I will not lay a hand on him. And why is this? It's not that Saul necessarily deserved to live. He deserved justice. And all of us know people like this. We all have people that deserve justice, that don't deserve our kindness, to them that have wronged us in one way or another. And we have this choice. Do we show them mercy or do we not? And how do we approach that? And I think the reason why David is approaching it in this way is because he really understands this really important concept for us as believers. There's almost no more important concept. Well, there's a lot of important concepts, but this is one that runs through all of the scripture and comes up over and over again, and it comes up in our ethics and in the way we live our life. This is one of the most practical lessons of Christianity, and it is this, that people are made in the image of God, and that to do damage to the image is to speak about what it represents. Let me give you an illustration. The U.S. flag is a symbol for the United States, right? So let's say you're traveling overseas, and you, you're walking around, you're having a great time, and one day you walk into the street, and you see U.S. flags burning from every window. Well, you better start using a French accent and stop ordering cheeseburgers, okay, because that's not a place where you're going to want to be as an American. You're going to want to get out of there, run to the U.S. Embassy, book a flight, get out of there, because Obviously, even though you haven't seen anything on the news and you don't know what's going on, these people are not happy with our country if that's what ha- is going on. In a similar way, in the Old Testament, the gods that they worshiped would also often have symbols. So when you read about Old Testament gods, like lowercase g gods, you read about astropoles, you read about uh, statues of ba- uh, Baal, and these were symbols of the God they represented. And so if you were to take those symbols and cast them out of the land, you're essentially saying, this God's not to be worshipped here anymore, which is something that we see happen with the kings all the time. They're throwing the idols out of the land so that the one true God can reign. But God, our God, the one true God, he doesn't give us an image to worship. He created us in his image. The infinitely complex God has given this image ultra complex being to represent him. And so the way that we treat other people represents the way that we treat God. And so for you to use your words to crush someone else is for you to not just insult that person, but to insult the God that that person represents, even if they're a bad representation of that person, of that God. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me here? The way you treat people reflects the way you feel about God, because people are made in the image of God, so to murder someone is to insult the God in whose image they are made. Two quotes on this are helpful. The first one is from someone who 's a little bit controversial but uh, and has a bit of a bad reputation in some crowds but uh, No one I've ever heard actually uh, critique this person has actually read anything that he's written. He's just been offended by people that followed him. But John Calvin uh, said this, and I think this is a really profound uh, way of, of, of thinking about this. He says, The Lord commands us to do good unto all men without exception, though the majority are very undeserving when judged according to their own merits. The Scripture teaches that we must not think of man's real value but only of his creation in the image of God to which we owe all possible honor and love. What Calvin is saying is this, many of the people in your life are not deserving of love, yet that shouldn't matter to us whatsoever, because the way we treat people is dependent upon their being created in the image of God. The second quote that's helpful here is from C.S. Lewis, who's one of my heroes. I'm reading his Narnia books with my kids right now, and it's, it's joyful. It's rejoiceful. Um, but Lewis says this, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Later on in our passage, David and Saul are having a conversation about how David saw Saul's life as precious. He considered his life precious, of very high value. Friends, People are far more than people. Life is precious. Every person that you've ever interacted with is stamped with the image of God. And so while they might not be deserving of your mercy and of your kindness, God is. And we don't treat people based upon what they are deserving of. We treat people based upon what they represent. They represent God. A love for humans must be at the heart of who we are as humans, as, as, as Christians. a love for humans must be at the heart of who we are for Christians, because we love the God in whose image the humans are created. So that means that we have a theology that believes that life is valuable from the womb to the tomb. This informs me and the things that people might say are political issues, but I would just say are gospel issues. They're just issues that we all care about. It informs what we think about abortion. It also informs how we think about how we treat other people, how we treat people with fairness and equity. It informs what we think about racism. It informs what we think about sexism. It informs what we think about immigration. It informs how we think about how we treat our friends who might disagree with us or live differently than us. It informs how we treat people that have systematically been oppressed in our society. It informs how we treat those who are poor among us. We treat them as image bearers of God and nothing less. You might think that, this, that I'm getting political at the moment. I'm really not. We can have different ideas on how we best can treat these people with honor, dignity, and worth. You see, the gospel, the Christian way, is not a Democratic or, or Republican way. Of doing things. We don't belong primarily to the kingdom of the United States of America, but to the kingdom of heaven as our ultimate allegiance. And friends, we do have freedom on how we think that we can best care for immigrants. We do have freedom on how we think we can best care for the poor. But those are gospel issues. We must care for the poor. We must care for the unborn. We must care for women. We must care for immigrants because they're stamped with the image of God. And the way that we treat people is the way that we feel about the Lord. All life is precious. That's why the Bible actually bans Christians from getting revenge. As a Christian, you are not allowed to get revenge. Just straight and simple, okay? I normally don't speak in such simplicities here, but that's just something that the Bible is very clear about, that you leave vengeance to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We have to trust the Lord with those things. Now, sometimes the Lord uses the governing authorities to get his vengeance. They are a tool of the Lord, but it is not up to us ourselves to achieve revenge. Three reasons Christians don't get revenge. David deserved to get revenge. He chose not to get revenge. Three reasons Christians don't get revenge is Christians know that all life is precious and it's a gift from God. Secondly, we also know that God is just. Hence, David is able to say either the Lord will strike him down or he'll die of old age or he'll lose in battle. He knows that God's going to be right at the end of the day. So it's not up to him to take Saul's life. He's got to leave it to God to make that decision. And thirdly, oftentimes our ideas of what justice is are wrong. Have you ever been wrong about anything? Have you ever wished you slept on it a little bit longer before writing that email or saying that dumb thing? We're oftentimes wrong. And so it's better for us to leave it to the Lord. We trust the Lord will get justice, whether it be in this life, through the governing authorities, or in eternity. But our role is to show mercy and allow Him to get justice. Does this sound hard to you? If it doesn't sound hard to you, it's because no one has really wronged you in a way that you can remember at this moment. Because it is hard. It is hard to show mercy to people try telling a mom grieving the death of their child of her child at the hands of a drunk, drunk driver that she has to have mercy try telling an older couple who had a who had a crooked financial advisor steal their retirement that they should have mercy try telling a young man who's been hunted by a powerful king for over 10 years that he should have mercy it is not easy. How can you have mercy when you've been truly wrong? How are we to be merciful people? Two, the requirements for mercy. How we have mercy. How in the world did David have it in him to do this? I mean, he had been on the run for so long. He could have just t- picked up the king's spear and let Abishai put it through his eye and call it a day. Stop running. Usually when we're reading the Bible, we don't have much insight into how people are feeling. That's one thing that I love about reality TV shows. Not that I watch a lot of them, but when you watch a reality TV show, uh, they're acting out everything. And then what they do is they actually call in the people later to come in and voice over what they were thinking and feeling at the moment. So any reality TV show does this. It's like, man, I really thought I was going to lose at this point. I didn't know what was happening or something or i felt really hurt by what he was saying they they have like this overdub of of what they were thinking at the moment and the bible doesn't have that except for here because in in this story we actually get an insight into david's life because david is the author of the psalms he wrote half of the psalms essentially half and Of the Psalms, actually seven or eight of them have been accredited to that exact moment when he's running from from Saul. And two were accredited to him when he was hiding in the cave. So we can get a a look into what's going on in, in David's heart and head as he's in the cave running from Saul. And this is what it says. And this blew me away this week when I read it. Psalm 57, when David was in the cave, verse 1. This is how it starts off. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Pleading for mercy. Psalm 142, verse 1. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. So how is David able to show mercy to Saul? When you're up all night in a cave pleading to God for mercy on your soul, when you're given an opportunity to show mercy to someone else, it's easier. When you understand what you've been forgiven of, when you understand what God has given to you, it's easier to be merciful. It's hard to be a cold and callous killer when you're writing poems begging God for his mercy. How can you be a more merciful person? Receive the mercy of the Lord. God loves mercy. God, 2 Corinthians Chapter one, as the Father of mercies. He is the Ephesians two chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter two verse four. He is rich in mercies. I love the way that Dane Ortlund says it. He says that God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy, and the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through life cause His fortune to grow greater, not less. How many of us here today can say that we are rich in mercy? The, the normal American Christian does not say that they're rich in mercy. When you look at their life, what you might see them being rich in is indignation. <laughs> I'm rich in indignation. I'm rich in self-righteousness. I'm rich in thinking I'm better than others. But God is rich in mercy. And so when we think about how God relates with us, we don't usually think about God being merciful like this, being kind to us in this way. We assume that God relates to us in the same kind of way that we relate to one another. And the way that we relate to one another is oftentimes tit for tat. It's oftentimes, you did this to me, I'm going to do this for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You wrong me, I'll wrong you. But God doesn't respond to us in that way. When we wrong him, he shows us mercy. When we wrong him, he shows us mercy. Listen to how he's described in in Exodus chapter 33. It says, he's merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but yet he is just, and he will get his way at the end. If we regularly, church, are experiencing God's mercy and kindness, we will be merciful people if we regularly are coming to him, seeing that we need his mercy and kindness, we will be changed into being merciful and kind people. We're going to be forgiving people. I want you to look at Jesus and the kind of forgiveness that he showed. At the end of his life, he's being nailed to a cross, nails through his palms and his feet, His clothes are being stripped from him and divvied among the the military soldiers. And what does he say in that moment as his clothes are being divided out? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. They don't understand. He doesn't cry out saying, you'll get yours, wait until, wait until you see that special level of hell that my Father has prepared for you, nailing me to this cross. No, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mercy and kindness. We've been forgiven for much more than we could ever forgive. It's like the parable of the the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, where the servant is forgiven of this huge debt and then he goes out and he demands that a small debt be paid to him. And the king calls him back in and says, who are you to demand that you have your little debts paid when I just forgave you of multiple lifetimes of debt? Friends, that is us. That is us. May we be people who love people May we be people who view all life as precious. May we be people who show mercy and compassion when people don't deserve it. When you forgive, when you show mercy like this, if you've really been wronged, it's going to hurt. It's not easy. It means that though they deserve justice, you're going to overlook that. So you actually kind of have to pay a little bit of the penalty yourself. It's going to feel like you're losing, and they're winning. But doesn't Jesus say that those who lose are the real winners? That if you want to be first, you must be last. This is what it means to be the servant. I love what Dan Hamilton says about forgiveness. He says that wood and nails are the currency of forgiveness. Wood and nails are the currency of forgiveness. And here's the big idea for today. It all comes down to this. We are able to give mercy to the same degree that we have received mercy. We are able to give mercy to the same degree that we have received mercy. Friends, I need a lot of mercy from God. I'm not worthy of his love and affection, but yet he has been so kind to me. And therefore, I must be a man who shows mercy and kindness to others when they don't deserve it. Will you join me in that? Will you join me in the, the mercy-showing movement that is convictional kindness, that is when someone offends me, I don't try to offend them back, but I show them kindness and love. Will you join me in this movement where we don't shout at our enemies, where we don't declare how wrong they are in front of the world to see, where we don't try to, to, to stomp them into the ground, but we show convictional kindness in the way that we use our words and we treat them as a human being made in the image of God. Will you join me in this as we seek to forgive our enemies, to love them, to turn the cheek as they slap us, this is the way of Christ. On the night that he was betray, betrayed, Christ initiated a sacred meal to help us to remember that this is the way that we're going, that, that his blood was spilled and his body was broken for us. And he took the bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, This is my blood shed for you. And so as we take these physical reminders each week when we come together, we're being physically reminded of this sacrifice that our Lord made for us, sending his only begotten son and dying the death that we deserve so that we might receive his forgiveness and mercy and live with him forever in heaven. So stand with me as we pray. Father, as we come to this, this sacred meal, help us to rejoice um, in what you've done for us, to be thankful for it, uh, God, we, we pray that uh, as we take this meal, that we'll be reminded of your sacrifice, that we'll be reminded of your mercy and your kindness to us, and that you'll make us merciful people, people that can respond in a way that, that uh, honors other people as image bearers of God. Father, help us to, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to see what all you have forgiven us of. We ask that you will be changing us today and helping us to respond to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.